Our Square and the People in It, Part 4 Winter comes, stern and sharp, like an unpaid landlord to our square, with sleet and gale for its agents of eviction. No longer are the benches blithe with the voice of love or play or gossip, the wind has blown them all away. A few tenacious leaves still cling, withered, brown and clattering to the trees. There ruined choirs where late a sweet bird sang, and a few hardy stragglers beat across the unprotected spaces, just to maintain, as it were, the human right of way against the grey rigour of the skies. But, for the most part, we of our square, going about our concerns, huddle as close as may be to the lee of walls, for, though we would not for the world have it known, many of us are none too warmly clad. Behind the blank opaqueness of the bordering windows, one may surmise much want and penury and cold, which also we keep to ourselves. Our square has its pride. We do not publish our trials. Perhaps Cyrus the Gaunt knew as much of them as any, for by imperceptible gradations he had become the confidant, the judge, the arbiter of our difficulties, and the friend of the shyest, the hardest, and the proudest of us alike. His engine seat was become a throne, from whence he dispensed every good thing but charity. That word, and all that follows in its train, he hated, which shows that he had learned our square. After hours he would drop in, almost secretly, on some friend, and it was a curious coincidence that Cyrus's friends were chosen apparently on the basis of need and distress. He had that rare knack of helping out without involving the aided one in the coils of obligation. There is nothing our square wouldn't have done for Cyrus the Gaunt. I believe he could even have been elected alderman. Winter drove Cyrus from his perch and put a brake on the thunder wagon before the job was quite finished. There still remained some final repairs which must now wait for the spring on the side where the bonny lassie's little house stood, bleak and desolate. Not wholly deserted, however, for one brave and happy dancer still stuck to her post in the window, lifting a thrilled face to the sky. Other employment claimed Cyrus the Gaunt until his iron steed should come out of the stable, a day job on a stationary engine around in Pike Street, our square remarked with concern that the indoor employment didn't seem to suit Cyrus the Gaunt. He became gaunter and thinner and more melancholy looking, and more than once he was seen on wild nights when nobody was supposed to be out late, staring at the now quite unembarrassed house with the quaint little door and the broad vestibule. But through the light and cheer that our square had seen grow in Cyrus's face in the early days of his job were greying over, there increased the new understanding and sympathy and determination in lines that he had put there himself in the building of his new manhood. Thus, only in this perplexing world does a man lift himself by his own bootstraps. Though Cyrus the Gaunt could boast a thousand friends, he had accepted but one intimate. That was McClacken, the tailor. Every day they lunched on Frankfurters and Kohlrabi at Schwartz's. Thither Cyrus was wont to have his scanty mail sent from the house where he lodged, 
One blustery December day, the tailor arrived late to find his friend fingering a pink slip of paper of suggestive appearance. You'll have been aiming a bit outside, commented McClacken. Cyrus flipped the paper over to him. Save us, cried the awe-stricken Scott. It's a thousand dollars, all in the one piece. Two months overdue. He didn't have my address, I suppose. He had been drawing a lottery. No, it's a bet. Also, my release. I'd almost forgotten. My time's up. You'll not be leaving us, said the tailor. Cyrus avoided his eyes. I'm through, Mac, he said. Dully, it's no use. It's not worthwhile. Nothing's worthwhile. There was a long pause. Man, said McClacken finally. He thought what this'll mean to our square. Cyrus the Gaunt thought. Behind the curtain of his impenetrable face, there passed a panorama of recent memories, events which had, for the first time in his career, made him one with the fabric of life. Faces appealed to him, hands were outstretched to him confidently for the friendly help that he could give so well. The voices of the children hailed him as a fellow. The baseball team, which did most of its practice at noon on the asphalt, claimed a corner of his memory. His ears rang with the everyday greetings of his own people, and another panorama, summed up by the pink slip, faded away. Cyrus folded the cheque and put it carefully in the pocket of his overalls. "'You'll be staying here,' said McClacken contentedly, having read his expression. Cyrus nodded. Then the tailor's darkness fell from him for a moment. He laid a hand on his friend's shoulder. Laddie, he said, the little bronze dancer is in the window yet. Cyrus turned a haggard face to him. I know, he said. Do you make nothing of that? Nothing. You know why, what she went away for. I heard. Well, I'm learning to forget. Little bronze dancer is in the window yet, repeated the obstinate Scot. How Cyrus won through that long winter is his own affair. Our square respects other people's troubles. It asked no questions. Finally, winter broke and fled before a southeast wind full of fragrance, and the trees began to whisper important tidings to each other and a pioneer butterfly of the deepest, most luminous purple-black with buff edges to its wings arrived, and led the whole juvenile populace such a chase as surely never there was since the Pied Piper fluted his seductions long ago. And the benches came out of their long retreat, fresh-painted to stand sturdy and stiff in their old places, and so did Cyrus's thunder-wagon, whereon he perched nightly once more, and was even more than before, the taciturn, humorous, kindly, secret, friendly adviser to all and sundry. Then, one crisp March evening, he became aware of a strong, bent, feminine figure, beckoning him from the curbstone. Clanging to a halt, he heard a voice, unforgettable through its tinge of foreign accent, say, "'How do you do? I have been seeing your face all through my travels.' Cyrus took off his working cap and shook hands. So I've come back to look at it. It's thin. Would you like to be painted? 
I don't think so, thank you. I've been sculpted within an inch of my life. So I have understood, said the very great woman, with a smile not devoid of sympathy. You are not done with it yet. She is coming. The face of Cyrus the Gaunt lighted marvellously. Coming back to our square, he cried. Then the light faded. But, but me no buts. She is coming. I did it. I found that she had never finished you. So I told her that if she did not come back and finish, I would take you away from her and finish you myself. And oh, I am as bad a sculptor as I am a good painter, almost. Her laughter rang in the chill air. So she comes, and I have travelled all the way to this impossible spot to play traitor. The question is, are you a man? You look it at last. Question is, will you answer me one? No, 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 no. Put your questions where they belong. Farewell, my phaeton of the slums. The world was mad with the wine of the wind the night the bonny lassie came back to our square. All the trees waved their lean arms in welcome and sent down little buds as messengers of joy over her return. Of living welcomers there was none, for the gale had swept all humans before it except Terry the cop, and he didn't recognise her from the distance in her otherworldly raiment. That must have cost her a pang. Unnoticed, she crept into the little old, quaint, friendly house, and its doors closed behind her like reassurance of a friendly arm. She sat herself in the dark window, where the blithe dancer still tripped it, faithful and lonely, and waited for Cyrus the Gaunt. But when she saw his face, the bonny lassie didn't sculp. She cried. Cyrus mounted to his seat and pulled the lever over. The engine was running badly that night, and the wind almost blew him from his perch. Aside from the improbability that the little sculptor would brave such weather, the charioteer was presently so immersed in his own immediate concerns that he all but forgot the prospective visit. When he had brought his charge to its senses and reduced it to some control, he was interrupted by the plight of a belated pushcart woman who was dragging anchor and drifting fast to leeward under the furious impulsion of the nor'easter. Cyrus had just dragged her almost from under his ponderous wheels when a beam flashed in his eyes and he looked up to see a truck close upon them. His yell split the darkness. The truck driver, with a mighty wrench, swung his vehicle sharp to the left and up onto the sidewalk. The up-tilted lights shone full into the lower window of the little old friendly house. Pressed against that window, Cyrus saw the apparition of a tear-softened, desolate visage. Reason, prudence and propriety deserted their posts in his brain simultaneously. A dozen long-legged leaps carried him as far as the vestibule of the little house. There his knees basely weakened. Perhaps her heart divined his step and sent her forth to meet him. Or perhaps it was his old ally, Chance, that brought her into the vestibule as he stood there shaking. Oh! she cried and shrank back into a corner with a deprecatory movement which to him was infinitely pathetic. I'm sorry, said Cyrus. I saw your face and thought you were in trouble. If, <clears throat> if you wanted me to sit for you again, he said composedly, I should be very glad to, until you've finished your sketch. 
Oh, no, I, I couldn't ask you. I couldn't think of after uh, what, what? Her voice waned into silence. Don't feel that way at all, he encouraged her with resolved cheerfulness. I can be a model and nothing more again, I assure you. Her upturned eyes implored him. Don't be cruel, she said. Cruel? he repeated wonderingly. Not at all. I'll be polite. It isn't too late to offer my best wishes, though I'm not sure I know the name. What name? Your, your married name. Then you don't know, she gasped. The brain of Cyrus the Gaunt suddenly went numb. I know you went away from us to get married. I did, she quavered, but I couldn't. I, I, I tried to make myself go through with it. I couldn't. No woman could when... Her voice trembled into silence. A boisterous backdraft of the tempest thrust its way through the door and puffed out the little vestibule light. With a sense of irreparable loss impending, he felt rather than heard her moving from him into the blackness of the outer world. Yet his mind seemed clogged and chained as he strove to grasp the meaning of what she had said, or was it what she had left unsaid? And in a moment she would be gone forever. Suddenly, miracle of miracles, he felt those soft, strong hands on his arm and heard her sobbing appeal. Oh, Cyrus, aren't you ever going to smile at me inside again? His arms went out. The bonnie lassie's hand slipped up to his shoulder. The flower face pressed close and cold and sweet against his. Love of my heart, he cried. I'll never do anything else all my life long. Summer is tyrant in our square now. The leaves droop flaccid and dusty on the trees, and the sun gives a shrewish welcome to the faithful who still cling to the benches. Gone is Cyrus's chariot of flame and thunder. The work is done. Gone too is Cyrus, and with him the bonny lassie, after a wedding duly set forth with much pomp and splendour in the public prints. Among those present was our square. So now the little quaint old friendly house stands vacant, with eager sunbeams darting about it in search of entry. Vacant, but not cheerless, for behind the panes against which the bonny lassie once pressed her sorrowful face, troop the elfin company of her dream children, the dancing figurines. Cyrus the Gaunt would have it so. He deeded her the house as a wedding gift, that the happy dancers might remain with us lonely and unforgetting folk. They are the promise that one day our bonny lassie will come back to our square.